Amen. Uh, would, would you join me in giving an extra thanks to Fred for leading today? So thanks, Fred. <clears throat> we are going to officially adopt him as one of the mics, so uh, good job. So uh, we've got Fred, and then next week, uh, Tay Hobson, who's also been up here singing, uh, Tay Hobson will take over officially as our part-time new uh, music director, and Tay is over there, so give a round of applause for her too. All right, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We are in the book of Acts, the second part of chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. This is God's word to us this morning. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they had been staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Parenthetical note from the author. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language a Keldama, which is field of blood, and a great name for a Christian metal band. <laughs> and parenthetical note. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word today with hearing, with understanding, Lord, I pray for the work of your Holy Spirit to bring not only instruction, but Lord, to work within us, those who are gathered here, those who are joining uh, online now or even at a later date. I pray for the work of your Spirit to bring your word to bear upon each of our individual lives and upon our, our life corporately. 
as your body here at Oak Park Christian Church. Lord, I pray for the work of your spirit to help convince those who may disbelieve. Lord, to comfort those who may doubt. Lord, to refocus those of us who may be distracted. And Lord, I pray for the work of your spirit to draw each of us closer to you, especially as we embark on a new year so so full of fresh opportunity. Lord, I pray that this will not only be the year, but that year will start now where this is the year we experience you more powerfully than ever. We are drawn more close to you than we ever have been before. Lord, I pray and I ask in the name of Jesus that this is the time that begins an incredible work of your spirit and your word among us to teach, to instruct, to convert, to conform. Lord, no matter where we are, what we've been going through, whatever situations in our lives, Lord, I pray that in these moments, your word will go forth powerfully and your spirit will work through it. As always, Lord God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to speak, to work, to act for your glory through Jesus, your Son, our Savior, our Lord, O Father God. Amen. Would you please be seated? Well, it has to be quite an adrenaline crash, right? Jesus has resurrected. The disciples finally believe that. They've, they've got it figured out. Jesus kind of pops in and out over a course of 40 days saying, hi guys, I'm still here. We still got work to do. The disciples have gone through all of the emotional roller coaster of seeing their Lord crucified, executed, laid in a tomb, and then all of a sudden he is alive again. That is an emotional roller coaster. Jesus has appeared, he has taught them, he has dined with them, he has interacted with them, and then it comes time for Jesus to leave because his ministry to them is now done and it's time for his ministry through them to begin. So last week we looked at the ascension, the returning of Jesus from this earth to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. As he conquered death, he conquered humanity's greatest enemy. Therefore, as the victor over our greatest enemy, he is now Lord. He is Lord of all. And he reigns and rules from the right hand of God the Father over a rebellious creation that resists his lordship. And still the majority renounce that lordship as well. But the disciples almost have to be in shell shock at this point. In the course of only about 40 days, they have seen Jesus die and they've seen him rise from the dead. And then he has kept teaching them about when the Holy Spirit comes, you will go and you will do. You will experience these things. Then they see him taken up from among them. And then there's two angels there who talk to him, talk to them. Say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up in the sky? The same Jesus will return as in the same way that he left you. Now just go and do what he told you to do. And what did Jesus tell them to do? To wait. That is the most difficult spiritual command there is, right? To wait. We don't like to wait. We don't like to sit. We want things done right now on our timeline in our favor. That's the way God proves himself, right? I get what I want when I want it, and and, God is at my beck and call. 
But Jesus tells the disciples, go into Jerusalem and wait. It's an unspecified amount of time. So immediately after Jesus' ascension, the 11 remaining disciples, remember Judas kind of flamed out, and then also there's a whole other group of people that are with them. They go from the Mount of Olives back into the city of Jerusalem. Luke records this as a Sabbath day's journey. It's just one of these little things that is inserted into the text. But it is so significant, even though it is such a small detail. A Sabbath day's journey is about 2,000 cubits. What's a cubit? Well, it's about six-tenths of, uh, the total of 2,000 is about six-tenths of a mile. You see, the, the, the Mosaic law, the law under which the Jewish people lived, did not have a restriction. It had a principle. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. You shall refrain from working on the seventh day. Well, what does refrain from working mean? So over the centuries, hundreds of rabbis began to define what working on the Sabbath meant. And they put so much work into it that they basically came up with, you can't really hard to do anything on the Sabbath. But they did make an allowance that you have to be able to walk at least a little bit because walking is work. So they defined how much walking is not work and how much is work. And they defined it as 2,000 cubits. I'm sure it was a very logical discussion that came to this point. I don't see it. I don't understand it. Now, the crazy thing here is that Luke is a Gentile. He did not live under the Mosaic law. He was a Gentile convert. But in this text, he said it's a Sabbath day's journey. This is one of the little clues he gives us throughout the book that this man did his research. He actually delved into the Jewishness of the story of Jesus. And he includes this little detail. And it gives an appreciation for what the Jewish people, how they lived and, and the laws they lived under. It's his research cred, so to speak, coming through here in the very first chapter of the book. Just one little insight into the authenticness and the historicity of this book. He says that this group situates in what is known as the upper room. The upper room is, is a very common room in larger Palestinian homes of the time, probably kind of like a third floor almost, which means this was a McMansion of the day, much larger than the normal houses, which were very, very small and had open courtyards and stuff. This one was much larger, most likely belonged to a lady named Mary. There's officially about 723 Marys in the New Testament, so it's easy to get confused. No, there's not that many, but there's a lot. It's a very common name. Mary, you start delineate, delineating the Marys and the Jameses in the New Testament. Very confusing, very common name. But this Mary was the mother of John Mark, who we know as Mark, who's the author of the Gospel of Mark. So evidently, in some way, she had a larger house that served almost as the epicenter for the birth of the church. It is very likely that this upper room is where Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples right before his crucifixion. It is this room that served as where Jesus made his resurrection appearances. When the text saying that he, that he came through locked doors, this is probably the room where that happened. 
This is the room where we will see in chapter two where, where when the Holy Spirit does come upon the apostles, this is where it takes place. The, the birth of the church, so to speak, the giving of the Spirit happens in the upper room. So this place is kind of the true epicenter for all the life in the church at this point. Very important place. Luke mentions that there are others as a part of this entourage. I know, I know for me, I often just think it's this little band of 11 or 12 guys following Jesus, but evidently it was quite the production. He, he, was like a, he was like a rap star from the day, which is just have all the tagalongs and this ever-growing entourage that always surrounded him. And it was that way when he was, when he was preaching in the countryside as well. It wasn't just Jesus and the disciples. It was Jesus and the disciples plus the disciples plus the women who were also disciples. This was a large endeavor. No wonder they made such an entrance into these little villages where Jesus preached and taught and healed. Although the only one Luke names is Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was there, but he does say the women. The women were most likely Mary Magdalene. Salome and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, a different Mary than the one who owned the house. You begin to see how many there are, and it gets confusing. But Mary, Magdalene, Salome, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, they were the first witnesses to the resurrection. They were the very first people to see Jesus alive after he had died. They were held in high honor and high esteem among all the early disciples. Women were an integral part of Jesus' ministry as a whole. Mark even noted that many women followed him. You see, unlike other rabbis, Jesus taught women as disciples. He allowed them to sit at his feet in the thousands of pages of written Jewish records of the rabbis over the centuries, not a single one had ever allowed women to hold that place. Jesus did. And it wasn't just that they were disciples. They were actually the, the, the funders of his ministry. We see in the book of Luke that it was a number of women who helped support Jesus and the disciples by providing financial support. Luke chapter 8, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Women were an integral part of Jesus' ministry. They were an essential part. And here in these moments of, of great emotional distress and so much, there has to be anxiety among all the followers of Jesus. Because as Jesus was dead, now he's alive, and then he's here, then he's not here, and now he's ascended, so he's really not here. And we're given this command to wait, now what? So let's just all get together, and if we can't figure things out, at least we're together. And that's what they did. The women were there. But, Mark also, or but Luke also includes one other detail. 
Not only was Mary the mother of Jesus there, so were his brothers. Now, during his earthly ministry, the brothers were not convinced he was the Son of God. They were not convinced he was the Messiah. They did not believe in him. And at one point, actually, the family became so concerned about his growing entourage and his growing ministry and the claims he was making that they devised to stage an intervention. Mark records that the brothers of Jesus, and probably along with his sisters as well, said, he is now a danger to himself and to others. We need to go stop this. The exact quote from the Gospel of Mark is, he is out of his mind. So those brothers who did not believe, who thought he was crazy, all of a sudden are in this upper room. They are with this smallish band of believers in Jesus, and they are right there praying and waiting as well because they saw Jesus alive. It's amazing what that does for disbelief. They believed because the resurrection made them believers. The command was to wait, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Luke doesn't specify how many days it is between this period and when the Holy Spirit comes, which we'll be looking at next week. But we can, we can calculate things. It was probably about 10 days. 10 days of waiting. 10 days of praying. 10 days of just hanging out together. They were marked by great unity, great harmony, and devout prayer. In the midst of those days, Peter, who became the de facto leader of the group of disciples, in the midst of that, he stands up and he tells this, this throng, this entourage of Jesus that we need to select a replacement for Judas. It's what the time in the Scriptures, it's what this time in prayer led Peter to do. You said, you see, there has to be 12 disciples. 12 is, is not mystical. 12 is very logical and very understandable. As Jesus was the Jewish Messiah instituting and fulfilling the Jewish messianic promises, the promises were to the 12 tribes, and the 12 tribes were then to be the witnesses to the world. They, they would be the ones through whom the gospel, the blessing of God would come to all nations. So there has to be 12. Speaking of Judas, by the way, just as an aside... We got a pretty graphic insight in what happened to Judas. Judas, when he realized his betrayal, and there's a number of factors that, that went into all of that, G Judas was filled with remorse, not repentance. And remorse and repentance are very different things. We can be sorry and feel bad, and then we can dive into that, we can dwell on that, or we can repent. And the Scriptures say when we repent, when we return to God, times of refreshing come. 
I think that would have been available to Judas had he repented. But instead, he was filled with remorse and regret, and he ended up taking his own life. Now back to the apostles. Peter says another one has to take his place. Now the requirements for an apostle were laid out here by by Peter. Those requirements were very strict. Whoever was going to be a replacement for Judas had to be a fellow eyewitness. Not just of Jesus rising from the dead, but Peter says they have to be someone who has been with us from the beginning. From the time Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his ministry, the entire three to three and a half years that Jesus went from village to village preaching and teaching and healing, the the, the next apostle has to come from one of the men who's been with us this whole time. Now, evidently, there there were more than two. Two are put forward. And that just goes to let me think, How many other guys were there that in all of this time period, they walked with Jesus, they were a part of the group, but they were never mentioned by name, they were never given acclaim and honor, they were part of the 70 that Jesus sent out, obviously, but this nondescript group of people who so faithfully stayed with Jesus in the moments of controversy in the moments of difficulty, in the wear and tear of walking the countryside, there was more than just these two men. It's kind of incredible to think about. Now, there's two people put forward. Matthias is chosen. Do we know anything about Matthias? No. He's never mentioned again in the Bible. There's some stuff from tradition and church history, but there's not very much. The second candidate is a man named Joseph, one of another number of Josephs, and James is in the, in the New Testament. There's a lot. So Luke helps us out. It's Joseph, also named Barsabbas, also called Justice. The dude gets three names, and he loses the vote. <laughs> he gets more ink than Matthias. Matthias was the winner. But more ink goes to Joseph. But one of those things about this is is that this Joseph was obviously known in the churches and in the faith communities that would receive Luke's book. He was a known commodity. And this is just one of those other little subtle things that shows that Luke did his research because he wasn't there. He wasn't even a believer in Jesus at this point. But he did the research. He went and talked to the people. He did the interviews. He got the names. And even the, the different names, the, the Roman name and the Aramaic name shows his work and his authenticity. And on this note, we see something else really interesting in Scripture They cast lots to replace Judas. Lots were basically marked stones placed in a jar and then shaken out. This is literally rolling the dice to see who becomes an apostle of Jesus. Now, there's a history of this in the Old Testament. And there's many, I'm sure, of us that we can be tempted if we want to know what God's will for our lives is. Hey, let's just go 
roll the dice. Let's play the numbers. Let's gamble a little bit with that and see because God will tell us. While it's an alluring as a decision-making process for determining God's will, it must be noted, this is never mentioned again for the selection of anything, especially leaders of Christ's church. There's a, there's a proverb, Proverbs 16, 33, which does say that the lot is cast, but the decision is made by the Lord. That's part of God's sovereignty. And I know many among us might be tempted to say, hey, it's in the Bible. Gambling is there. Rolling the dice is there. I think this is what I need to do to determine God's will or experience God's will or to receive God's blessing. I will give one check and balance to that. It is extremely unlikely that God's will for your life is to be successful in gambling. And I don't make that as a theological statement. I make that as a practical statement as someone who somewhat knows math. <laughs> don't push it. In other words, don't gamble. But it's God's sovereignty. But in this moment, there's a very simple, very heartfelt prayer that Peter issues. Lord, you know the hearts. Tell us which one you select. The lot falls to Matthias. How did Joseph feel? We don't know. But we do know that God directed that. We see nowadays from later in the book of Acts and other places in the New Testament that decision-making is to be done through searching the Scriptures, through prayer, through the Holy Spirit, and wise counsel. Maybe that's a good pattern for us to follow as well with the decisions that we make. Why was it so important for there to be a 12th apostle? Well, the 12 men that Jesus selected as disciples, and a disciple is a student or a learner, became apostles. An apostle is simply a sent one, an emissary, an ambassador, a missionary, as we would call them today. He commissioned disciples as apostles when they went and preached and taught and healed in his name. But after the resurrection, after the resurrection, the apostles, small a, became apostles, capital A. The 12 is a unique, distinct group. They alone have a special calling and a special authority as leaders. The term sent one's rather generic. The word apostle's generic. It's given to anyone who is commissioned for a task to preach or to, to do the work of the church. There are others in the New Testament named as apostles, Barnabas and James and Epaphroditus, but they're not the 12. The 12 held a unique role and a unique place in having authority to set the tone and set the doctrine for the life of the church. Twelve was important because Jesus said that his twelve disciples would judge the twelve tribes of Israel. We see in the book of Revelation that the new Jerusalem, the holy city, that will be our dwelling place in the hereafter. 
The 12 foundations of that city have inscribed on them the names of the 12 apostles. It's the 12 apostles and then later the 13th apostle. Once the tribes, the 12 tribes are fulfilled, there's the 13th, there's the Gentiles. And the apostle Paul is sent to the Gentiles. The 12 and then the 13th, Paul They are how the work of Jesus continues through the Holy Spirit. Remember, Luke began Acts with all that Jesus began to do and teach through the Holy Spirit and his apostles. Jesus continues to work through them. And we are the legacy of that today. The 12 were so important. Paul talks about the signs of a true apostle The signs of a true apostle were miraculous workings of the Holy Spirit. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And this may be a little bit controversial in some circles today, but it seems like the apostles or those they specifically selected in the New Testament were the only ones with the ability to do such miraculous things of healings and signs and wonders and things like that but it confirmed their authority and their place in the church. It is the faithful testimony, the teaching and the martyrdom of the apostles that serve as the foundation of the church. We are here today as a gathering and as an expression of the kingdom of God because the apostles faithfully endured persecution and harassment and beatings, and torture, and execution. They faithfully witnessed and represented what they saw Jesus as being alive after he died, and they passed that on. And we are the legacy, part of the legacy of that today. The Apostle Paul writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit the spirit that empowered the apostles and the the, the spirit that the apostles then passed on to others and the legacy of their truthfulness and faithfulness, we are the result of that today. And Christians are all around the globe. One of the most amazing things, if you've been following the news this last week, is is in Monday Night Football, there was a uh, a very scary incident happened where a football player, after a rather routine tackle, uh, stood up and then he collapsed, DeMar, uh, DeMar Hamlin. And the most amazing thing happened out of that. Everybody found religion. People on ESPN the most annoying and secular and leftist news organization in the sports world that there is, all of a sudden had people praying live on air. All of a sudden, the NFL reversed the policy about people praying, about players praying on the field. 
all of a sudden America has religion again. And man, it's a good thing. It's cool because the name of Jesus is being lifted up. All of a sudden, players and coaches and news personalities and sportscasters are coming out and saying, yeah, I I believe in God. I believe in Jesus too. Pretty amazing thing to happen. And we begin to see this one little insight out of that is that the foundation that the apostles laid in this temple that is being built is all over the world. And it is expansive and it is expanding as well. That's what has been built upon the foundation of the apostles. The apostles' teaching. That's what, when we get together as a church family, whether it be in corporate worship, whether it be in smaller groups, whatever the context may be, the, the, the focal point, the, the core essence of why we get together as the people of Jesus is the apostles' doctrine. It's the centerpiece of life together. The very first picture of what the church did when they gathered together was in Acts 2, 42 and 43. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That means they listened to the apostles tell the stories of Jesus recount their encounters with the resurrected Christ and then the implications of that. The apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and or the wonders and signs performed by the apostles. In fact, I think it's safe to say if there is a church gathering that does not include the legacy, the testimony, the historicity of the apostles, it may actually not be a church. It's got to be grounded in the Word of God. And the Word that we have in the New Testament is the testimony of the apostles. It's their words. It's their ministry recorded their authority has been transferred into the authoritativeness of the New Testament. And as we come down to where we are in the modern world, modern ministers like myself, modern ministry, it must be solely founded upon the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. Paul says that the apostles were given and others for the equipping of the saints. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. By the way, pastors and teachers, that's one category. It means either uh, teaching pastors or pastoring teachers. It's not two separate categories as some today like to advance. Pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's the point, to equip the saints for the work of serving Jesus. And that's what the apostles did. The apostles released so many into ministry. Those who were released told others about Jesus and people believed. 
when people believed they formed churches, small congregations, sometimes only a handful, maybe a dozen or more, maybe a couple of dozen. And these began to litter the entire Roman Empire. Some of the apostles took the gospel into Africa. Some took it into Asia and eastward and northward. And these pockets of Jesus believers and Jesus people began to grow and to explode and to multiply. Until today, more than one billion people, well, actually maybe closer to two billion now uh, or more on this planet, claim the name of Jesus in some form. The numbers are astounding. But it's built upon the foundation of the apostles. Those who saw, heard, touched Jesus before he died and after he died because he is alive. I'd like to have uh, the guys in the band come back up and the whole team as we prepare for a time of communion. And as we prepare for a communion, we, we do so with the mindset of honoring Jesus for what he did. Honoring Jesus and, yes, dying for our sins and rising from the dead but also honoring him in his ongoing ministry through the apostles, through the word, through the Holy Spirit into our lives today. And my question is this, what is the sure foundation for your life? Is the sure foundation Jesus and what the apostles have revealed about him? Is your sure foundation your finances? That's a shaky foundation, especially with inflation. Is your sure foundation your education or your intellect? Knowledge can be fleeting. Is your, your sure foundation your personality and your charisma? Charm fades as well. Tim is a man who is self-aware. Is your sure foundation your stuff? Is your sure foundation really not that sure? There is surety in Jesus and in his word and the legacy that has been passed down to us through the authority of his apostles that's now captured in the authoritativeness of his word. This is the foundation upon which to build your life, to build your identity, to secure your future.